This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade, where the learning experience is curated from their vast library of exclusive content and customized to fit your investing goals and interests. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Member SIPC. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp. Hello. <laughs> Personal finance expert here at the Molly Fool. In this week's episode, we're joined by Jeannie Thompson from Fidelity, and we're going to talk about trends in retirement. And what else? That's the most important thing in the world, really. So that's all you need to say. That's all Bro cares about. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, bro, for as long as I've been working at the Fool, I've heard about stock buybacks, aka stock repurchases. Um, the typical public relation line goes that it's in the best it's the best use of the company's capital because the stock is undervalued or the company wants to control its own destiny or anyway. And our analysts generally <laughs> greet them with like a shrug. Um, but because debt right now is so cheap and tax cuts are so deep, companies are allocating record levels of capital to stock buybacks. So, is that good for investors? Is it bad? Let's dig in. Let's do it. And we're going to do it with a bunch of metaphors. So, here we go. Metaphor number one. The most simple way to explain a stock buyback is to picture a pie. Like I said, it's our first metaphor. If a company is a pie, a single share represents one slice of that pie. And as a share owner, you get to eat more pie if the whole pie grows, such as if the company becomes more profitable, or if the pie is cut into fewer pie slices. Or you can think about it in pizza if pizza is more agreeable to you. So, quiche. How about quiche? That yeah. Work? So there you. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Rick's making a gross face. He's not a fan of quiche. I like some quiche. It depends. Okay, we're gonna have to do an episode on quiche in the future. I can see this is a hot topic that our listeners can't wait to hear more on. So, with a stock buyback, most commonly, a company takes some of its own cash and buys its own stock, taking it out of circulation and absorbing it into the company. Uh, as a result, there are fewer outstanding shares, or quiche slices. So, the individual share price goes up, because there's only one pie, but it's now sliced into fewer pizza, pizzas. Slices. Pieces of pizzas. Anyway, it's math. Like a dividend, <laughs> bottom line, it's a way to give cash back to shareholders. Oh, that's so nice of them! But, you might be thinking, aren't they manipulating their own share price? Yeah, they sort of are. So, up until 1982, companies couldn't buy back their own stock except under special circumstances. And then in 82, safe harbor rules, this is kind of another metaphor, it's a short one though, safe harbor rules by the SEC made it easier to navigate those uh, waters without landing in choppy seas or something like that. Sure. That's not my best metaphor in no, this. No, that's one. good. All right, so this, okay, there we are. There we so are. So, there, we're in the 80s, picture it. This crazy idea really started taking hold in the 80s, and I blame cocaine. But before this, <laughs> and by the way, I realize that I'm putting on the rosiest of rose colored glasses, but before this crazy idea in the 80s, it was generally believed that companies had lots of stakeholders and that they needed to act in the interest of many different parties, which meant investing money back in the business, back in employees, back in innovation, sort of longer term thinking. And again, I realize this is very rose colored glasses. But in the 80s, an idea emerged that companies exist solely to do what, bro? 
to increase the value of the company for the benefit of shareholders. Yes, that's Thank you. right. To deliver profit to shareholders and that the managers should make decisions to maximize those profits at all time. What is the most important time? Now. <laughs> Very short-term thinking. And so, this resulted in companies increasingly issuing dividends to shareholders rather than investing that money back in the business. Um, if a business laid off a ton of employees, the share price would rise because, yeah. hooray, reduced labor costs! Yeah. Um, and the hurdles to stock buybacks, again, were lowered by the SEC. So, if you believe that the only purpose of a company is in to increase its share price for shareholders, then yeah, share buybacks are great! But mostly for short-term shareholders, which you and I, dear fool, are not, right? That's true. There we go. A study by the research firm Fortuna Advisors found that five years out, the stocks of companies that engaged in heavy buybacks performed worse for shareholders than the stocks of companies that didn't. This sort of makes sense. I mean, after all, investing money back into the business, back into making employees happy, into innovation and long-term growth. Instead of doing that, these companies are just literally giving it away. And yeah, as shareholders, we get some quick cheddar, but the ones who benefit the most are, who do you think? The executives. Yes, that's right, bro! <laughs> Did you do your homework? I didn't. I've just read a thing or two about investing, but I think this is a fascinating topic. In an article in The Atlantic by Jerry Yuseem, he points out, um, he points to research done by the SEC. Uh, to, quote, look at how buybacks affect how much skin executives keep in the game, by which we mean, of course, how much company stock they hold in the company they are actually leading. So, the SEC found that in the eight days following a buyback announcement, executives on average sold five times as much stock as they had on an ordinary day. Hmm. Thus, deduced the SEC commissioner, exec, quote, executive personally captured the benefit of the short-term stock price pop, Created by the buyback announcement, you seem good. The um, author, the reporter, goes on to say that executives' abuse of stock buybacks is so widespread. Quote: It's like singling out snowflakes for ruining the driveway. But he does call out a couple executives by name. First one, Craig Manier, the chairman uh, and CEO of Home Depot. Oh. The day after announcing a four billion dollar buyback on an investment. Investor conference call back in February of 2018, the CEO sold over 113,000 shares, netting 18 million. The following day, he was granted over 38,000 new shares and promptly unloaded a bunch of those shares for a total profit of 4.5 million. Though Meaner's stated compensation in SEC filings was 11.4 million for 2018, stock sales helped him earn an additional 30 million for the year. Mm. Oh, here's another example. Merck. As you seem writes, Merck insists it must keep drug prices high to fund new research. In 2018, however, the company spent $10 billion on R&D and $14 billion on share repurchases and dividends, including to the CEO, Kenneth Frazier, who has sold $54.8 million in stock since last July. So, how does it look by industry? Well, Let's head over to a July article in The New Yorker titled, The Economist Who Put Stock Buybacks in Washington's Crosshairs. Harvard business professor and longtime critic of stock buybacks, William Lezonik, Lezonik sure. found that between 2008 and 2017, the largest pharmaceutical companies spent $300 billion on buybacks and another $290 billion paying dividends, which was equivalent to a little more than 100% of their combined profits. And then there's the poster child of buybacks, which would be Apple. 
Since the death of its founder, Steve Jobs, in 2011, Apple has distributed $325 billion to its shareholders, while spending only $58 billion on research and development. I know saying only $58 billion is kind of <laughs> But still, we're comparing numbers. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious, right? I mean, yes, I did buy a new Mac, and I just bought a new iPhone last week. Uh, but when was the last really amazing innovation to come out of Apple? I have I have no comment on that. Okay, well anyway, there you go. That's the answer. Apple lovers, you know, go ahead and at me. That's fine. Apple would say that all of those stock buybacks were a success, right? After all, their share price has doubled since 2015. Meanwhile, Apple's net income this fiscal year is projected to be almost exactly equal to that what the company booked four years earlier. All right, hey, let's look at Boeing. From that same New Yorker article, between 2013 and 2019, Boeing spent more than $17 billion on dividends, 42% of its profits, and an additional $43 billion on buybacks, 104% of its profits, rather than spending resources to address design flaws in some of its popular jet models or developing new planes. We all know how well that's going for Boeing right now, unfortunately. (laughs) Fun fact, you know who doesn't like buybacks? It's Amazon. They've only done one in seven years. Oh, that's interesting. I know, right? Anyway, let's zoom out from the individual company and industry level and look at what could be a serious problem brewing for everyone. Dun dun dun! <laughs> All right, share bear, share buybacks are expected to approach one trillion dollars this year, says Goldman Sachs. For the first time since the financial crisis, companies have given back more to shareholders than they are making in cash, net of capital expenditures and interest payments, or free cash flow. That's according to Goldman Sachs as well. So, ready for a stat to really blow your mind? I am so ready. According to the Federal Reserve, again, this data that is also from Goldman Sachs, over the past nine years, corporations have put more money into their own stocks, an astonishing $3.8 trillion, than every other type of investor combined. Individuals, mutual funds, pensions, foreign investors. That's amazing. I told you that was going to blow your mind. (laughs) So, going back to the uh, Lazenick in the New Yorker article, he argues that stock buybacks deserve most of the blame for wage wage stagnation in this country uh, because executives are putting a priority on lining their own pocket with um, stock buybacks rather than investing in their own workers through raises and increased benefits. And, according to Reuters, companies are increasingly using cheap debt to fund stock buybacks. That can't be good, right? Yeah, it it is kind of, when you think about that, that's kind of crazy. So, Reuters quoted an analyst from Pictet Asset Management, and uh, they said, if you look at the cost of equity versus the cost of debt, the incentive, incentive to issue debt and buy back equity has never been higher. All right, so again. Companies are increasingly using cheap debt to fund share buybacks. It can't be good. Dare I say the B word? I'll let Lenore Palladino, economist with the Roosevelt Institute, say it. Here's a quote from The New Yorker. I think there's a real danger of stock buybacks topping out the market and then the bubble bursting. That was the B word, by the way. There were two Bs there. That was good. We know who gets hurt when the bubble bursts, and it's the majority of us. All right, so what's the takeaway? On the small stage, the research does seem to show that stock buybacks don't usually benefit long-term investors like you and me. But everyone's doing it, so it's not like you can avoid investing in those companies. You can also sort of take an agnostic approach. Um, Stock buybacks are a tool. A tool used properly can be good, 
For example, stock buybacks can be used to systematically buy back shares from employees to sort of level set outstanding shares. And if they are a tool, can you really blame the hammer if the builder uses it to install a light switch plate? But when you think about hundreds of builders using hammers to install light switch plates, well, that leaves everyone in the dark. That was my last metaphor. This is a good one. That was good. Thank you. All right. Anyway, I have a lot more of reading to do on this. Jason Zweig over at the Wall Street Journal, we tend to have a lot of respect for him. Yeah. He defended stock buybacks and he thinks all this fuss is overblown. Overblown. Um, Aswath Demodaran, did I say that close enough yeah. to being right? Yeah, yeah. I just try to say it as quickly as possible. Business professor at NYU. He's written about everything. And so, yeah. of course, he's also written about this. And he admits that there are value destroying buybacks, but he also believes that collectively, buybacks make far more sense than dividends as a way of returning cash. Um, so, good, bad, or agnostic, what we do know is that stock buybacks aren't going away so long as tax cuts and low interest rates are leaving companies with more money than good ideas. And that, bro, is what's up. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. So, you've done a ton of research on a trade, but you can't decide if you want to go through with it. TD Ameritrade's trade desk might be the secret to figuring it all out. Just go to TD Ameritrade dot com slash trade desk to see how they can help gut check your trades. Member SIPC. Retirement is the number one financial goal for most Americans. And the most common way that Americans are preparing for retirement, according to the Federal Reserve, is by contributing to a defined contribution plan such as a 401k. So it would be pretty helpful to know how much Americans have managed to amass in these accounts, and more importantly, is it enough? Well, one company that is particularly well positioned to answer those questions is Fidelity Investments, which administers 17 million 401k accounts across 23,000 plans that collectively own $1.84 trillion in assets. A lot of money. That is a lot of do-re-mi. That's right. And here to share some of the firm's insights is Jeannie Thompson, Head of Workplace Solutions Thought Leadership at Fidelity. Jeannie, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start with the question of how much people need to save for retirement. Uh, Fidelity has published research that provides some age-based guidelines as a multiple of household income. So let me just go over those very quickly. According to these guidelines, someone who is 30 should have saved an amount that is one time their income. So if they make $50,000 a year, they should have $50,000 in their 401k or IRA, whatever they're saving. Um, Those factors jump to three times income by age 40, six times by 50, eight times by 60, and then 10 times by retirement, assuming a retirement age of 67. So those are the guidelines. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's behind those numbers? Okay, sure. Yeah, so when we started to think about creating guidelines, we really wanted to understand how much people needed to consume in retirement. And so you start by looking at their pre-retirement income. So at the end of the career, if someone was making $100,000, are they going to need that $100,000 annually in retirement? And we call that income replacement rate. Um, We found that most people 
need between 55 and 80% of their income in retirement. Now, some of that will come from Social Security, and that really depends. So, if you're making around $300,000, Social Security is probably only going to replace 10% of your income. But if you're making you know, a lot less, like $50,000, it's going to replace a lot more. So, when we looked at how people are consuming their assets in retirement, we found that Across incomes from fifty thousand to three hundred thousand, most people needed forty-five percent income replacement rate of their pre-retirement income for retirement, and, and that forty-five so, percent is what's coming from the portfolio. Yes, and Social Security is making up the rest of that difference. That's exactly right. So right. across all of those that income range, fifty to three hundred thousand, forty-five percent was a common asset-based income replacement rate, with Social Security covering the rest. So that's where we started. So when we realized that most people are going to need 45% income replacement rate, we said, OK, let's. how do we get them to that replacement rate? And so we did the math and found that if you start at age 25 and you save fifteen total of 15% of your income, it'll put you on that path to replace 45%. But most Americans, the income replacement rate, it's kind of complex. We wanted to find a way to take that number and distill it. And that's where we came up with the multiple of income and then broke that down to age-based guidelines. And that 15% also includes the employer match, right? So- so if you get like a one for one dollar match on that first five percent, if you, that means you put in ten percent, employer puts in the five percent, you hit that fifteen percent goal. That's exactly right. Yep, and it can it does seem high, but when we look at the average savings rates today, on average, employee and employer combined, people are saving about thirteen and a half percent, and that's across all ages. As you get older, you see people saving even more. Right. Uh, the interesting thing about the guidelines is you, the way you have it initially published. It's at a retirement age of sixty-seven. Yes. Which is, at least in terms of Social Security, the full retirement age for anyone who was born in 1960 or later. The truth is that most people in America, at least at this point, aren't retor- they're, they're retiring sooner than that. And if you read into the report, you actually get, you provide a little more granular information on that. So, for example, you say that if you retire at age 62, you have to have 14 times uh, your income. If yeah. you retire at 65, you have to have 12 times. So, I think that's very helpful. But what's particularly interesting about that is not only do you have to have more saved, but the sooner you retire, the smaller your Social Security is going to be, which means more of your income has to be replaced by your portfolio. That, that's exactly right, because you're going to be in retirement longer, working less, so save less. So, what the amount that you need to replace is much higher. And it, people that are retiring at 62 and 63, they also have to account for health care, because right. the, you know, health care is going to be the, one of the biggest expenses that people have in retirement. And for many people, you know, Medicare doesn't kick in until 65, and many don't have retiree medical. So, even if they're taking an early retirement from their employer, they may not have that medical retiree medical figured out. So, they're going to need potentially even more than if they waited till they were 65. Right. And, and I'll just point out, too, that in the guidelines, it, it says if you wait till age 70, you only need eight times your income That's right. to retire, which I often say on the show, 70 is the new 65 for the people, especially for the people who are not saving enough. Just waiting until age 70 to retire is going to do wonders for your retirement security. That's right. Yeah. And we're, you know, it's hard to think when you're young that you're going to be working till you're 70, but you know, as you get into your career, you know, the life takes away and it's not actually we find in a lot of our research that we've done with the Stanford Center on Longevity that oftentimes people they want to stay a part of society, want a community, maybe not in their main career, but working part-time or going to a different type of job is a great way to build that transition. We're not saying you have to stay in the same career where you might be stressed out or burnt out, but you can make different choices as you get closer to retirement. 
So uh, early last year, MarketWatch did an article on these guidelines and then sent out a tweet. Uh, The tweet said, by 35, you should have twice your salary saved, according to retirement experts. Well, that got a lot of people riled. A lot of outrage from people saying, how could I possibly do this? Do you even know any real-life people? A lot of snark. The hashtag by 35 became a thing. Yes. <laughs> what was, what's your take on that? And, what, and maybe Fidelity's take on it in general? Well, so I would, so I, there's lots to say there. Um, I think the first and most important thing is that it really started a conversation. And when we created these guidelines, it was really about engaging people because the biggest question we always get is how much do I need to save? And before that, we would say, well, you need to replace 85% of your income. And people, that does, that's not a good answer. And so the goal of this was to give a simple rule of thumb. Now, we did get a lot because it does seem, you know, if you're 35 years old making $50,000, the guidelines telling you, that you need $100,000 saved for retirement. But again, it's a guideline. Just like the doctor tells you to exercise five days a week and eat five servings of fruits and vegetables or whatever. So I don't do that every day, but I'm sitting here before you having this conversation and I'm probably like pretty healthy. So it doesn't mean if you're not at the guideline that all is lost. There's a lot that you can still do, um, but it's and everyone's situation is different. And so we have a lot of planning tools, and there's tons of people out there that can help you know figure out your personal situation. But the first step is to get people even interested in talking about it. Now, from a millennial perspective, we see that many people, right, they are coming out of college with student debt, they have credit card debt, they're sometimes delaying marriage because they don't have the money for the wedding, they don't have the money for a house. And so, you know, we understand that it's not that easy to get there. But I will say, when we look at millennials and we look at the um, average um, balance for someone, a millennial that's been in a 401k for 10 years, so say from 25 to 35, the average balance is $135,000 and the average income is $62,000. So that's pretty good. Yeah. So on average, people are getting there. Now, not everyone, there's, you know, the averages, there's people on either side, right. but it is doable. Um, and what was really interesting about the, the social media firestorm around this was that you had two camps. You had people that said, well, that's what it's going to take, and you should be aware. And then other people said, I can never get there. And I think this is why a lot of employers are now starting to focus on financial wellness and really putting in programs that not just talk about saving and investing, but debt, debt budgeting, and protection. Emergency fund is a hot topic for us, too. Uh, so those are the guidelines. Yes. That's where people should be. Yes. What's the information that you have in terms of how well people are doing in terms of meeting those guidelines? Yeah, so when we look across and see how people are meeting those guidelines, it's about 50% of the people are doing well. Of those, 32, 32% are on track, and the other 18% are close. And if they made one or two tweaks, they would probably get there. The other 50%, um, there's 28% that are, need attention, and there's probably five or six things that they might need to do to get back on track. And then there's about 22% that are fair. So it's sort of 50-50, I think, in terms of of where people are at. Um, and then, you know, within the averages, there's different things that they can do to get themselves back. And are we um, talking uh, purely with Fidelity account holders, or is this like a broader survey that you guys did of everyone in America? Yeah, so this is a, based on a broader survey of everyone that we did in America. So when we look at our 401k accounts, it's very possible that people may have old 401ks with someone else or IRAs. So this, mm-hmm. sur- this survey looked at how people are doing against the guidelines. 
So that's actually pretty much in sync with a lot of other research. For example, the Center for, for Retirement Research at Boston College, their evidence is that basically about 50% of people are on track to retire at their current lifestyle. The other 50% are going to have to cut it back. If they wait until age 70 to retire, 90% will be on track. So again, it gets back to if you could just put retirement off for a few more years, you're probably in good shape. That's right. And when we looked at the, our data from our survey, when we looked at people that wanted to retire at 67, more were on track. If you look at the people that want to retire at 65 or 62, all of a sudden there's a lot more that are off track. Yeah. And so that that retirement age, and I know you've said you are a big um, believer in this, that retirement age is a huge. Makes a huge impact on when you know how long and how, how much money you'll have. I know one thing that that Fidelity does is do a little bit of research in the folks who are doing things well, like the four hundred one k millionaires. Yes. So the people who do have a million dollars in the four hundred one k, what are they doing right? So they're basically, to some extent, following what it takes to get to reach the guidelines. You know, they're starting early, um, they're saving a lot, taking full advantage of company match. Um, for the most part, they're especially when they're young, investing for long-term growth. So they hold, on average, you know, 75%, 78% equity in their 401k. Um, they don't cash out when changing jobs. They typically don't take 401k loans or hardship withdrawals. So they get in, they stay in, and they save as much and invest for that long. Term growth. I will say it takes a career for many people to save to get there. You know, on average, it's about 27 years to reach that status. Again, but there's limits to like how much you can put into a 401k, and so that sort of restricts you know how quickly you can get there. Um, but we looked at people who make even less than $150,000, and over the course of their career, they were able to get there. That's great. Uh, so one topic that you touched on previously. And it's one of the biggest expenses in retirement, and it's one of the few that actually keep going up throughout retirement, is healthcare. Yes. And for several years, Fidelity has published an estimate of how much retirees need to have saved to cover medical care. So, what does the latest report have to say about that? Yeah, so the latest report says that for a couple who's retiring today at age 65, they would need $285,000 to cover their medical expenses. On average, we estimate about 15% of your retirement income will go towards healthcare expenses. Um, but when you break that number down, the 285000 that's needed, um, between women and men, it's different. So for women, it's $150,000. If you're, for an individual woman retiring today, that's how much she would need to cover. And for men, it's 135000 And the big difference there is longevity. One of the things that you highlighted, or one of the Fidelity Reports highlighted, is basically ignorance about Medicare. When we're working, we're all used to our employer basically choosing our medical plan for us, yes. and we just go with it. And if you have a good plan, most of your expenses are covered. And then you get to retirement, you have to choose which Medicare plan you're going to choose. And, and a lot of things are not covered. Eyewear, dental care, all kinds of things that people, I think, assume Medicare is going to cover. It's not actually going to be covered. No, that's true. And the other um, thing that a lot of people don't realize is that you actually have to pay for Medicare. Right. <laughs> that there's Medicare premiums, um, and that oftentimes on top of Medicare, you may want supplemental insurance as well. And so factoring in the cost of those premiums, cost of prescription drugs, and cost of copays is all part of what makes up that two hundred eighty-five thousand dollars. One way to prepare for these healthcare expenses is by taking advantage of health savings accounts. 
which are becoming more widely used these days. So what's your take on those? Yeah, so um, health savings accounts are available to people who are in a high deductible health plan. So, you know, just like your car insurance, you can choose to have a $500 deductible with your car insurance or a $1,000 deductible. Many employers are moving to these high deductible plans where, you know, the deductible for the year may be $3,000. So with that, employers can offer a health savings account. Um, the benefit of that is you can save in that. So instead of your premium is potentially lower, so you're not paying every month, say, $300 a month for healthcare, maybe it's only 100 you can take that difference and put it into an HSA. So it goes in tax-free, grows tax-free, and comes out tax-free. So it's a triple tax savings benefit. And unlike a flex spending account, you can actually roll it over. So you don't lose it at the end of the year. And if you have any money left at the end of the year in that account, you can actually invest it in mutual funds so it can achieve that long-term growth. Now, that's actually an interesting point, something I learned by reading one of the Fidelity reports, is that most people actually aren't doing that. So the stat I read was that more than 91% of Fidelity HSA-funded account holders held all of their savings in cash. Mm. Now, on one hand, I would say that makes sense, right? You know, Any money you need in the next few years should be in cash. You don't want the market to drop 50%, and then you need to cover some medical bills. On the other hand, once you've built up some of that money, it does make sense to invest some of it for the longer term. Yeah, so we, we suggest that you know if your deductible is, say, $3,000, you can keep that amount in cash, or whatever your anticipated health expenses are for the coming year, keep that in cash, because it's short term and you may need the money. For you know money that you haven't spent in a given year, that's the money that you can start to invest. And for someone who's young, you know, typically we see a lot of people don't get into their employer health plan until they're over 26 because they could stay on their parents' health plan. And many opt into that so that they can use that money for student debt and things like that. But once you're if you're 26, 27, early 30s, you're single, you're independent, you can put in $3,000 into that um, health savings account every year. If you're only going to the doctor for a well visit once a year, you're probably not going to tap into that. And if you're instead in like a PPO or HMO and paying a high premium, you're almost overinsured. Yeah. And so better you're better off actually going for the high deductible while you're young, healthy, putting that money in, and then you have 20 or 30 years of growth. Um, but then even as you're, as you're, you know, when your kids are young, they do go to the doctor a lot, so you'd have built up that cushion. And it depends. Some years, I mean, I've, I'm in a high deductible myself, and I some some years we hit it by March. Um, you know, my son broke his arm, and then there's physical, th- there's all kinds of things, and that was the end. And then other years, you don't touch it at all. So I think it, it ebbs and flows, but over time, I mean, it's a long-term play. Um, so we, you know, if you need the money for healthcare current, you should. But if you have the opportunity to save it for the long and invest it for the long term, that's definitely the way to go. You highlighted that women should have more saved to cover healthcare in retirement, and I think that highlights something very important. That is, retirement planning can present more challenges for women. So I'll just cite a few of the the unsettling stats. So according to the National Institute for Retirement Security. Income for women aged 65 and older is 26% lower than men, and women are 80% more likely to be impoverished in retirement. Um, One stat from Elvest that I read is that women make up 56% of college students but hold 65% of the total student debt. Um, So what's your take on that? What's a woman to do, given that there are some unique challenges? Yeah, So I think the the biggest thing they can do is 
pay attention <laughs> to where they're at, right? I mean, we, especially women um, that are either married or in a, in a partnership is not to disengage from their finances. Because if you don't know what's going on, if something was to happen to a spouse or partner, it's at that point, if years have gone by, it's really hard to get in the game, especially if they're no longer there. Um, so I think that's one of the most important things is to stay engaged and keep tabs on it. There's so much free help available to people. Um, I do think part of the challenge for women that makes it harder is, you know, they come in and out of the workforce, you know, when they're young. Like even myself as an example, I stepped out for a few years when my children were young. Um, and then if they go through a divorce, if they suddenly have to take care of aging parents, um, oftentimes some of that falls to the daughter. And not only do they take care of the parent, and oftentimes they may have to become trustee or power of attorney on their assets. And so not even knowing how to manage their own. And now all of a sudden they have their parents. Um, it's very important for them to stay engaged. Yeah. According to the Social Security Administration, the average woman spends 12 years outside of the workforce taking care of kids, taking care of parents. 61% of caregivers are female, and it is usually the oldest daughter. Yeah. Um, another issue is that uh, in most married couples, the wife is younger. The husband retires, the wife feels like she should retire too, but she may be retiring too soon. Yes, retiring too soon. And then, you know, depending on when the husband retires, again, that health care piece comes in. And oftentimes, it's just such a longer time period for her that she has to have more saved. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the research or what Fidelity has come to understand uh, when uh, you're reaching out to people who aren't as maybe involved in um, investing in their 401k? So women or uh, people who are from other cultures. And a lot of it comes down to the messaging and the framing. So we have behavioral scientists on the team, and we're starting to do some A-B testing where we're looking at, you know, do do when you're talking about numbers, does it work better if you use a percent, a number, right? Or you just use words and say half the people versus one out of two versus 50%. And so if we can start to understand how language changes, because we do find like in certain cultures, if we focus on the self versus family, we get a very different um, response rate. So if we say, you know, it's really important, you know, Robert, for you to save for the future because it will help your family versus you should save for the future because it's going to help you. So if in, when we look at sort of Asian and Hispanic cultures focusing on the family, it's much more, um, you, you know, we get much more of a reaction than if we just focus on that. So we're looking at things like numeracy. We're looking at self versus family. We're looking at um, gain versus loss. Um, and then the last one is time for horizon. Do it today because it's important versus do it today because it will help you in the future. And so that kind of thing, I think when you think about trying to reach women versus men, it's not about like dumbing it down or putting it pink on it. It's about just using language that will resonate with their mindset, their state of mind and how they see the world. And that's it. So it's not just about women versus men. It's about engaging people you know, of all different cultures and all different ages. Yeah, I think with um, you know with the Motley Fool, our big focus is investing and buying great stocks, and you can beat the market. And there's a lot of language in there in there that's like that's very like competitive and and grr and very alpha male <laughs> and get in there and buy the stock because it's going to go through the moon. Keep and... score and that's all fine. It's important. Keeping score is important. Being transparent. All these things are important. But I can understand as 
as a woman, because I am, if I see these ads, I'm kind of like, oh, that is that is not that's that's just not what I'm here for. I'm not here for that. Right. Right. <laughs> so. right. Well, and if they took that same idea and reframed it mm-hmm. in a way that was meaningful to you, you could get the same message um, and maybe take the same action. But it's just how how it's positioned is very different. So we're doing a lot of work in that space to not only engage women, but people of all different you know cultures and backgrounds. Uh, to go back to a previous topic, but since you mentioned behavioral, I think one thing that you are learning at, at Fidelity and probably other places as well is how important it is to nudge people to do the right thing. And the, the biggest example of that is auto-enrollment and auto-escalation into the 401k. Because if you just leave it to people to sign up on their own, much lower participation rate, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would say before sort of the big advent of target date funds, which you know puts you, def- most employers use a target date default fund, people are either 0% equity or 100% equity. And today, 50% of people are on sort of their target asset mix because of target date funds and getting defaulted into them. 75% of millennials are 100% invested in target date because of the default. Um, and participation rates in plans that have auto-enrollment are like 85%. Plans without auto-enrollment, it's 50%. So that type of behavioral, you know, sort of making the decision and taking the decision out, and def- you have to opt out, um, has gone you know, gangbusters. Yeah. Is that a growing trend that more and more companies are just auto-enrolling? Because we, we don't auto-enroll here at The Fool. Yeah, we do. We do? Yes, we do. <laughs> I thought we did. Oh, so that's so we do have a very high participation rate, but there's a very small people that opt out. Yes. So yeah, at the, at the full, it's a 93% participation rate. So 7% of the people have opted out, or they've been here longer before we had auto enrollment because uh, it has. It's relatively recent. Can you imagine someone being here before we had auto enrollment and not? It's hard. It's hard for me to understand how you can work at the Motley Fool and not be enrolled in our four hundred one k. Let me tell you, (laughs) (laughs) I've seen some people make. And I'm saying this just because I want everyone to know that even if you work at the Motley Fool, you're not perfect. We all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And I've I've no people. uh, when I first well, when I first started at the Fool, we didn't even have a match, believe it or not. And then the first match was like fifty cents on the dollar up to six percent, and then we moved it to eight and nine. But there were people who had signed up and got that six, and then like, oh, I'll go to eight or nine eventually, and they never did, which is then why we eventually did auto escalation, so it'll get you up to that nine yeah. percent. Because it's not because people are uh, ignorant; it's not because they're horrible people. It's just time. It's not often the, the the number one thing on your list of things to do. It's easy to put it off. So the more I think, the more companies like the Motley Fool can do to sort of push you to do the right thing, I think the better off you're going to be. Often on this show, um, a certain somebody will talk about how if you don't like what's being offered in your company's 401k, you should lobby and do something, try to talk to your plan provider to do something. Do you have any examples of people where that they've actually been successful in actually changing what they're, what they're being offered and getting better options and things like that? Many plans today have a brokerage window or self-directed brokerage option. So, for most 401k, I mean, these are like working Americans out there. They don't have a lot of time to look at fund lineups and, and mm-hmm. stock pick and all of that. And so, the the employer sort of curates a set of mutual funds for them. If they have, if they're a big enough employer, they may have company stock. But then there's something called a brokerage window or self-directed brokerage, where you can go in essentially to the window, and then you have you know everything essentially available um, on the open architecture platform. So that, and I think that's the way a lot of employers have 
gotten around that. Now, I would say with among the 401k um, investors that we have, not a lot utilize that, but we do have, you know, a small set of active traders within the 401k that do utilize it. And so that, that kind of gets around having to add 50 funds to a fund lineup that might overwhelm the majority of the, ba- the investor base. So. Yeah. Uh, so we're almost out of time here, but there's one thing I wanted to touch on that's a little off topic, but I thought it was interesting when I learned about it, and that is Fidelity is among the minority of employers that offer student loan assistance, uh, and you also offer basically a service to help other companies offer this as a benefit. So do you see this as a growing trend, or do you think this will mostly be just a handful of companies that are helping out? kids who just came out of college. Yeah, so we do every year um, a survey with the National Business Group on Health um, for employers. And in that survey, 30% said that in 2019, they already offer the benefit or planning on implementing it in 2019. Another 50% are thinking about it for, for 2020. So I do think, you know, Attracting and retaining millennials is such a top priority for many employers that if that's a key demographic that they want to reach, we will see more of this. Um, Today, 70 employers have adopted the student loan benefit, and we actually just did a release. Um, Raytheon and Travelers are two of the biggest companies that just adopted it. Um, So I do think it is going to be a growing trend, especially if they have an aging workforce and need to replace that talent with young talent. It's a key benefit to keep people there. They many employers were saying they found people who, you know, millennials who would change jobs just for an extra thousand dollars in pay mm. um, to pay off their student debt. So providing this benefit has been a great way. And even within Fidelity's employee base, who they offer that to, it's really helped with attraction and retention. What's a typical benefit look like in this case? How is it structured? So um, the way that the Fidelity is structured, so you can get up to ten thousand dollars over five years, um, and it it. But it's strict in the fact that you're just not given the money and it's assumed that you're going to pay. It goes directly to the student loan provider towards the principal. So the employee still has to pay their monthly, so it helps them pay it off faster um, and reduce those interest payments. Well, I think it's time to wrap things up. Uh, If you, dear Answers listener, would like to read any of Fidelity's extensive library of research for yourself, visit fidelity.com forward slash viewpoints. Jeannie, thanks for stopping by. This has been great. Yeah, this is great. It was really good to be here. Well, that's the show. It's edited metaphorically by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Foolish.